Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, Acts 13 is where we're going to be this morning, Acts chapter 13. So you can open up your Bible there, you can open up your Bible app and turn there, but Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, is where we'll be this morning. This morning, we are celebrating our ninth birthday or anniversary as a church. Nine years we have seen the Lord at work, and I'm just, for my own, I'm just curious. How many of you were there at our first service? Very first service. I know it was very, just a couple, handful. Yeah, well, we praise God for you. Praise God for the way that the Lord has used you. There's a lot we could celebrate over those nine years. We could celebrate the full-time missionaries that the Lord has used Catalyst to send. There are at least seven of them, full-time missionaries. We could celebrate the two church plants that we've sent out in uh, nine years. One, Grace Point Church in Williamsburg, and now sending out. Adam and Ashley to plant uh, what is tentatively titled Colorado, uh, excuse me, Catalyst Church, Colorado Springs. So we're excited to see what the Lord's going to do there. We could celebrate the hundreds of thousands of dollars we've given to missions or the baptisms and the stories of life change. I think about Marcus, a, a CNU student. I had the privilege of uh, discipling, and I remember meeting upstairs in the crow's nest with him. We were reading through Ephesians, and we got to Ephesians 2 one day, and we read that phrase for, for by God grace, for we are saved by grace through faith. And he sat right at that table and he looked across and he said, Jeff, whoa, 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 for by grace through faith. I thought that was just a catchphrase that you guys used around Catalyst. I had no idea that was in the Bible. And so we got to walk through Ephesians and uh, got to celebrate his obedience to Jesus in baptism. Mar we got to see Marcus get married and Marcus is now volunteering in youth ministry at a church in Richmond. Just need to see the Lord use stories like that. We can celebrate our volunteers, our staff, our elders or deacons and so much to celebrate in our past. And I'm confident that there's even more to celebrate in the future. It's like the older woman who went to her pastor and she said, pastor, I'm getting old and I want you to know I want to be buried with a fork. And the pastor said, a fork? That's, that's, that's kind of odd. Why a fork? And she said, because I know when we have the potluck at church and they come around and they clean up their plates, when they say, hold on to your fork, that reminds me that the best is yet to come. Right? I believe in the life of Catalyst Church, the best is yet to come. So hold on to your fork, or as Augie would say, rawr, right? Because it is coming and we're excited about it. So enough about us, though. Let's talk about you. What could we celebrate in your life? What could we celebrate in your future? What is the Lord doing right now? And what's he going to do this semester? And what's he going to do this year that we as a church could celebrate? What has God said this morning? Set apart for me. And then he said your name for the work to which I have called them. My prayer is that he will. That's exactly what happens in the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. If I could join any church in the New Testament, I would join the church in Antioch. I, I, would, I think it would be the church in Antioch, planted by unknown disciples as a result of persecution, fueled in the early days by Barnabas, the encourager. Then when the work got too big for Barnabas, he went and got Saul to help him lead. And man, God did a work in this church. And I think it's arguable that God did a bigger or greater work through that church than he did in that church. You see, that's the reality of every local church. God is doing 10,000 things every Sunday morning and we see maybe one 
tenth of a tenth of a tenth of a tenth of what he's doing. He's always at work, and so he's doing more work through this church in Antioch than he did in. I I love the way Daryl Bach puts it. We're going to put this quote up on the screen for you. He says this about the church in Antioch. Here is a church that has seen the need to reach out to the world as its members draw near to God. Their heart has become wedded to God's calling as a result. They commission their messengers to the work for the world. Worship and mission appear side by side as key tasks of the church. Worship and mission, side by side. So it was in Antioch, and one of my prayers is that it would be that way in Catalyst. You might think about it this way. Every good airplane, at least I'm no aeronautical engineer, but every good airplane so far as I can tell has two wings, right? This afternoon, I was supposed to get on a plane and fly down to New Orleans for a conference. I'm not going. You can understand why, right? Got canceled. But if I were to go to that airport and look out at the plane that I was getting ready to get on and see that it only had one wing, I'm not getting on. I don't care if everybody else gets on and they're like, oh, it's a great plane. It's totally, uh uh-uh. Y'all have fun in New Orleans. I ain't going. I like Newport News and living. And um, so two wings, right? Every airplane needs two wings. Now, it needs a lot more, like an engine and a pilot who knows what they're doing, right? And it needs more than just the two wings, but it has to have two wings. In the same way, the church must have two wings, worship and missions. We cannot fly well with only one wing, where we don't only have worship and get together and have the greatest, most God-exalting worship services, but never reach anybody, then we've missed the point. And if we were to try to reach everybody and be totally other people-oriented, but forget that God is really the hero of our story, we'd miss the point. God Godward and outward, worship and mission. So we just sang, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and let us sing, oh, praise him. That's both a command from the Psalms and an invitation, a summons, a beckoning to the nations and our neighbors. Let us exalt and magnify the Lord together, as Zach read, all creatures One uh, individual throughout church history who misapplied this, he tried, uh, is St. Francis of Assisi, who has a very oddly placed statue on CNU. I still don't know why CNU is like, hmm, St. Francis of Assisi, that's our guy, we're going to put him there. And the statue they picked, uh, if you ever get a chance, take a selfie with it. People will be like, who in the world is that? Um, But St. Francis of Assisi, he took this concept of preach the gospel to all creation, literally. And so he went out into the woods and started preaching to the squirrels. Okay, A for effort, right, maybe, Um, but I don't think that's what the biblical authors meant, right? I think they meant go into all creation and get the gospel to every person. Now, the gospel has cosmic implications, but I think they were saying what Matthew said, make disciples of all nations, and you can't make disciples of a squirrel or a dog for that matter, Unless it's a golden doodle, I think there might be some wiggle room there. That's just my humble but accurate opinion. So St. Francis of Assisi, all creatures, uh, that's what we're going for. Every person on and around the CNU community, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what I long to see. Every person, every person on and around the CNU community, a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
every person in your sphere of influence a disciple of Jesus Christ? What if God used you to spur revival in your sphere of influence? What if he used you to spur revival in your residence hall? And what's preventing you from being a part of that? Oh, I long for the day when excuses begin to lose their appeal and the risk of obedience seems worth it. I was on the phone with uh, uh, my statewide boss the other day for our network of churches, and he said, you know, Jeff, man, I'm just at a point of life where all of my excuses for not doing what I think God is calling me to do are beginning to lose their strength. He said, I, I don't know what it is, and so I'm 39 coming up on 40, and I was like, man, I get it, dude, the big major life moment, I think. I don't know, you turn 40, you feel like it should be a major life moment, but I'm like, okay, I, all of the excuses are beginning to lose their appeal. What about you? What would it look like if God called you to missions? Now, most Christians, when I ask them that question, all of a sudden have all kinds of excuses, right? We become very articulate when we're asked, why is God, what if God called you to missions? We can list a thousand reasons. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I can't say the right things enough. I don't know the right answers. Um, By the way, young women, that's why you should take part in that apologetics for young women class. Just a little plug then. Uh, Men, you should take part in the systematic theology class. But we come up with the excuses. Oh, no, 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 no. He wouldn't call me into missions because I just started uh, classes at CNU. Like, I'm a brand new student, God wouldn't call me somewhere else. No, 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 we just brought a house, purchased a house, God wouldn't call us into missions. No, 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 I'm at this stage of life, like we're finally empty nesters, God wouldn't call me into missions. We have all of these excuses, why wouldn't God call us into missions? So let me ask the same question a different way. What if God called you to embrace this season of life as a mission trip? Ah, so you can't say no to that one. What if God called you to embrace this season of life as a mission trip. Oh, you just started classes, wonderful. You have four years where you're gonna be surrounded by people, most of whom are far from the Lord, and God has placed you there to spur revival. Oh, you just purchased a house? Wonderful, guess what? God placed you in that neighborhood as a missionary. Oh, you just got a brand new job. Guess what the Lord intends to do while you're there? Use you to reach other people. Oh, you're an empty nester now. Guess what the Lord intends you to do with that free energy? Use it as a missionary. What if God called you to embrace this season of life as a mission trip? That's what we see in Acts 13. This shift in the book of Acts where the church takes on a missionary posture. God speaks and his people respond. Daryl Bach explains everything about this event argues that mission is grounded in God's command and the response of a church engaged in devotion. God has spoken. He's spoken. I had one seminary professor that said it this way. God has spoken. Do you hear what he's saying? Right? He has spoken to you. Are we listening? And what would it look like if we embraced that invitation? So I want you to see five foundations for the church on mission this morning. Five foundations for the sending church in Acts 13. Number one, the church includes people with different gifts and backgrounds. Gifts and backgrounds. Acts 13 opens this way. Now there were in the church at Antioch, 
prophets and teachers. Sometimes I love Luke as a biblical author. Sometimes he drives me bonkers. This is one of those moments where he says, okay, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. But he doesn't tell us what the prophets did, and he doesn't tell us what the teachers did. And he doesn't tell us who the prophets were or uh, who the teachers were. He simply says that they were there. He doesn't clarify their roles or uh, indicate their names. He simply tells us that they were both involved in seeing the word advance. Prophets were, were likely those who spoke an inspired word from God for the edification and the direction of the community. Teachers would have had a less spontaneous declaration in preaching than the prophets, but they would have done more instruction and the passing on to others of the received apostolic teaching. So the apostles had a body of teaching that they passed on and the teachers passed it on to those in Antioch. This is how the church taught its doctrine before the use of books that later became the New Testament. Short doctrinal summaries, hymns, do you realize how much we just sang? I mean, so many of those lyrics, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That was essentially us singing Galatians 2.20, which was Augie's verse. That was us singing that. Not, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're singing that. All creatures of our God and King. We're singing the Psalms. Short doctrinal summaries, hymns, and rites like baptism as well as the Lord's table taught people the core doctrine. That's one of the reasons that if you've been around Catalyst Church any length of time, you've heard me say, God, thank you for the gospel. The good news that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. I didn't make that up. I stole it from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, word by word. That's how Paul explains the gospel. I say it that way over and over and over again because I'm trying to burn it into your minds. I want you to remember what the gospel is. That's why we end every service with the declaration, you are not dismissed, you are what? If you know it, you are sent. Yeah, you're sent because we want to burn that into your minds. We want you to know that God intends you to be a missionary. So that's what prophets and teachers did. And then we have this list of names. We can safely assume this is not an exhaustive list of those in the church. Luke didn't intend to give us that. He also didn't intend to focus on these individuals. They're not the heroes. But he mentions them. Barnabas, who was an encourager and a trailblazer who God used to start the church in Antioch. Simeon, who is called Niger, likely from the Ethiopian region. He would have had dark skin. Lucius of Cyrene. He was from Cyrene. That's about all we know about Lucius. Uh, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. You remember the Herods, that evil dynasty that wrecked havoc on Christ and his followers. Menean had been raised with Herod Antipas. Note the providence of God. Herod and Menean raised together, same household. One would kill John the Baptist. One would be involved in the crucifixion of Christ. The other would come to believe in the Christ and be listed among the church, the leaders in the church in Antioch and Saul, whose miraculous and unlikely conversion we read about in Acts 9. A reminder that no enemy of Christ is beyond the redemptive ability of Christ. You probably know some people right now who stand in stark opposition to Christ. They are clear on where they stand with Jesus and it is opposed to him. Saul reminds us that no one is beyond the redemptive hand of God. No one, not you, not me, not them. 
right? The greatest miracle in the history of the world is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The second greatest miracle in the history of the world is that Jeff Mingi is a Christian. If he can do it with me, he can do it with them. His converting power is real. So the church includes people with different gifts and different backgrounds. It's messy. You can imagine some of the cultural and ethnic differences these guys had to struggle with. I'll give you just one example that many of you have probably experienced if you've traveled anywhere. And that's the, the, the tension of time, right? Some people, when they say, I'll meet you at three o'clock, they mean if you're not there by 2.45, you're late. What's wrong? Some people mean if they say three o'clock, they mean somewhere between 3 p.m. and 3 a.m., give or take, right? They might show. It's just not, you know, oh, we said, okay, right? It's just culturally, we treat time differently depending on on a, a whole lot of factors. I can only imagine that Lucius of Cyrene either frustrated or was frustrated by the easygoing, people-oriented lifestyle of Barnabas, who was always so busy encouraging people that he never showed up on time. This is the local church. It's a great reminder that not all of God's people are like you. Sometimes you need to just look at somebody else in the local church and say, man, praise God he saved you. I mean, I don't get it, but praise God he saved you. Praise God he's at work in your life because you and I are very different. There are people in this room who come from city centers and those who come from the sticks. Some of our great-great-grandparents made Manhattans in a bougie nightclub, and others made moonshine in a shed. Some of our families come from great need and others from great affluence. Not everyone in the room is like you, if you would only get to know their stories. I mean, if we went back in history 150 years, which is not much in the great scheme of things, some of our families would literally have been at war with each other. Yes, we, we have different backgrounds in the room. We have Hokies in the room and Who's in the room. Of course, best looking of all, we got captains in the room. Let me just humble but accurate opinion again, right? Not all of God's people are like you. Christ inherits the nations. He is gathering a multitude around his throne from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. He gives varied grace and various gifts, but he always gives gifts to his church through people. So let us not bemoan our differences, but note them as differing cuts and facets of a diamond, each meant to reflect the glory of our king. Number two, two through five are shorter. The church gathers to worship the Lord. They gather to worship. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the whole church gathered for worship, worshiping the Lord and fasting. That that phrase, worshiping the Lord, also translates into ministering to the Lord. When Luke chose to use that word to describe what was happening in Antioch, he was intentional. The word originally meant to discharge a public office. So we could think of the minister of education or the minister of defense or the Ministry of Dark Arts. Some of you might be more familiar with that one at Hogwarts, a little school, lesser known. Uh, John MacArthur explains this, though. The leaders of the Antioch Church faithfully discharged the office God called them to and fulfilled their ministry. We have offices here at Catalyst. Essentially, we have three distinct ones. Elders, who are the pastors who shepherd the church. Deacons, who are the lead servants who serve the church. And members, who carry out the mission of God through and as the church. Speaking of which, if you're not a covenant member, what's preventing you? Become a covenant member. And each of these offices are carried out as their responsibilities unto the Lord. They were worshiping, ministering unto the Lord. That's what we're doing when we gather We're ministering to the Lord. He's the audience, not you, 
Not me, not unbelievers, the Lord. So when you show up on Sunday morning, you're not just walking into the room. You're not just singing. You're not just volunteering. You're not just greeting a new person. You're ministering to the Lord. You're like the priest in the Old Testament, laying the sacrifice on the altar. But as Paul explains in Romans 12, you're the sacrifice, a living sacrifice. That's not only true on Sunday, by the way. It's true in all of life. We just sang, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. So they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. And based on the context, there's a good chance that they were seeking God's guidance as to where to go from here. So they fasted. Fasted is foregoing food for the intentional purpose of spiritual focus. I've been convicted recently that perhaps God is calling us as a church to a season of prayer and fasting. We're entering into our ninth year of existence. Where is God leading us? What do we long to see him do? Who is God going to call as that next church planter or missionary that we send? He may intend to tell us through prayer and fasting. So I emailed the elders this week and and, and said, hey, let's, let's think and pray about this. I hope you'll join us. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit speaks to and through the gathered church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, We're not told how the Holy Spirit spoke, even though that's what we all want to know. We all want to know how did he speak? Did it happen, you know, was it an audible voice? Did it come through the speakers? Was it something the preacher or the prophet said? Did it happen during a time of singing or prayer? This is the age-old question of how do I discern the voice of God? There's a simple principle that you discern the voice of God through the word of God. You discern the voice of God through the word of God. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. Every time you read your Bible, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. That's why Peter called the scriptures a prophetic word to which we would do well to pay attention. So we're not told how the Holy Spirit spoke, but we are told when he spoke. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. This is a plural act of praise, similar to how we opened up the psalmist. Again, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. The Holy Spirit speaks to and through the gathered church. As his word is rightly opened, rightly preached, rightly prayed and sung, I'm praying through clarifying our values as a church and thinking, okay, what what are the values that are going to drive us forward? And one of the values that the Lord has laid on my heart is simply this, open Bibles. We value open Bibles, whether it's in your quiet time or one-on-one discipleship or in the corporate gathering, we value open Bibles. And oh, imagine what the Spirit might speak to you during our gatherings. He may impress one of you to prepare for the mission field. We've seen him do that. He may call one of you to ministry. We've seen him do that. He may burden you with the spiritual stagnancy of a family member in such a way that you ask them to study the Bible with you. We've seen him do that. He may stir in you a desire to see a group of others gathered together for Christian fellowship and encouragement so that you open up your home for a new community group. We've seen him do that. He may convict you of your lack of prayer and fasting and lead you to seek him this semester with renewed prayer and fasting. I think we're seeing him do that now. He may stir you to be obedient in pursuing baptism. We've seen him do that. Why do you think the Holy Spirit spoke this to the gathered church? Why not to Saul in his quiet time? Why not to Barnabas while he was on his way to encourage someone? Why not to one of the prophets while he was taking a shower? I don't know about you. That's where I get my best ideas, right? No pen nearby. And I'm like, oh, that's genius. Trying to like write it in shampoo on the shower wall, see if it'll stick. It doesn't, right? Why during the gathering of the church? I think one of the reasons he did it 
was because the gathering of the local church is the initial proving ground of our creed, what we say we believe to be true. We gather together to make these proclamations, sing these songs, sit under this word, partake of this meal. The church gathering is the initial proving ground of our creed. It is the widest point of the funnel. It is the lowest rung on the ladder. I think God was making the point, you won't go to the mission field if you won't go to the church gathering first. If you won't show up for Christ on Sunday, don't expect to speak out for Christ on Monday. You cannot be a good witness for Christ in the workplace if you won't obey him in the gathering of believers. The local church gathering matters. The Spirit speaks. Number four, God calls all Christians to mission and uniquely calls some Christians to particular mission fields. It's an interesting moment. You have the church gathered in Antioch, all of them having heard the voice of God, responded in faith to trust Christ for their salvation. They've obeyed God's command to gather for worship, and they're doing so with an intensity that is marked by prayer and fasting. They've all understood that as followers of Jesus, they are called to be ambassadors for Jesus. They are all on mission. God intends for all of us to be on mission. Spurgeon said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You're either a missionary or an imposter. To follow Jesus is to be on mission. If you've ever wondered, am I called? Let this be the moment I clarify it for you. You are called. You're called. You are called to the mission field. It's a question of which mission field, where and when. But we're not all called the same. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called him. He didn't say set apart for me, Menias or Simeon, right? He, he said, Barnabas and Saul, the Lord had a particular work and purpose to which he had called them, but he doesn't tell them what it was. He doesn't lay out the details. He simply declares the command and gives the invitation. Response to God's call always carries with it an adventurous step of faith. Again, he gives this in the context of the local church. We have such an individualistic mentality that we think it's just me and God. What is God's will for my life? What is God leading me to do? But as Luke recorded this event, he could have just generalized the moment and the Lord called Barnabas and Paul to take the gospel too, right? Sometimes in the book of Acts, he gives sweeping statements, but in this moment, the way Luke records it is in the context of the gathered church. It reminds me of the very small New Testament book Philemon in which the apostle Paul, I think it's the most personal of his letters. Paul writes a letter to one man named Philemon to reconcile with one other man named Onesimus. There had been tremendous relational strain. Onesimus was in the wrong. And Paul said, Philemon, Onesimus is a Christian. I want you to be reconciled to him. It was an insanely personal letter. But guess who Paul wrote the letter to? Guess who he addressed it to? The church who meets in Philemon's house. He said to Philemon, I'm gonna write you this incredibly personal letter and I'm gonna address it to the church that meets in your house. Paul writes the letter to the church, why? Because the church is the context in which we hear and discern the call of God in our life. You are all called to, called to mission. We are all called to mission, some to particular missions. Fifth and finally, the church is God's missionary sending agency. Verse three, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, 
They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. I've always loved how verses 3 and 4 work together. Who sent Saul and Barnabas? Verse 3, it was the church. Verse 4, it was the Holy Spirit. So which one was it? Both, right? It was both. The Spirit through the church. You are sent. When we, uh, as a state convention, will assess church planters, Men will uh, say, I feel called to plant a church to, in, in this field, and we'll assess them. And one of the questions we will ask them is, tell us about your sending church. No planter can plant a church in, in our network of churches without a sending church. Why? Because we believe that churches plant churches. The same way, missionaries are required to have a sending church. We see later on in the, the story of Acts that Barnabas and Saul would actually come back to report to Antioch because that was their sending church. Some of us recognize this tension as we live and minister in a transient area. Listen, ministry in a transient area stinks sometimes. Right, it does. We have military men and women that we grow real close to and then they move. We have college students that we come to love and then they move, they get a job. And we, we have friends and family that we grow really close to and then something happens and the Lord calls them elsewhere. Ministry in a transient area is hard, but we send for the mission. Jesus accomplishes his mission through the sending of the church. One day we will be gathered fully and finally and without fear of will I lose this relationship. One day around the throne of Christ our King we will dwell satisfied forever. But until then, with glad obedience, we recognize that God may call some of us to stay and serve on this mission field and others to go and serve on another mission field altogether and we believe that the glory of Christ is worth it. So what do we do with this? What do we do? I want to very briefly give you three Antioch commitments, three Antioch commitments that you can begin to take as you posture yourself for missions. Number one, I will worship with expectancy. Worship with expectancy. We see the church gathered for worship and the Lord speaks. How pitiful do we need to be to worship without a sense of expectancy? Puritan John Owen wrote, to make a habit of coming to God and not expecting of receiving good and great things from him is to despise. God altogether. When you come to church, bring a Bible, bring a pen, bring lipstick, mascara, something to write with, anything. Do you expect God to speak when you show up? Then whatever he says would be worth writing down. Write it down. And if you come to corporate worship and the whole thing feels cold, the entire sermon feels inapplicable and unrelatable and bears no affection on your soul, then take that text home and preach it to yourself the way you wish I had preached it. Go home, find a room, open up your Bible to the text and preach it the way you wish I had texted it. If we come to God without expectancy, the problem is not with God, nor his church, nor his word, but with us. Gather worship with expectancy. Secondly, gather relationally. Gather relationally. We call this the corporate gathering of the church, not because it's business-like, but because it's communal. We gather relationally. So don't show up late and leave early and be surprised when your heart grows cold and you feel distant from the church. Get to know some people. Serve with them. If you're a college student, meet somebody that's not a college student and say, hey, Jeff said you'd take me out to lunch and you'd pay for it. All right? And then if they say no, tell me. I'll take you out to lunch and they'll pay for it. All right? 
Get to know some people. This is, when, when I was in youth ministry, uh, we would have 80 kids in the room, 80 teenagers, and a, a new teenager would walk into the room and they'd be scared to death. And so this is what I'd do, and it worked every time. We would have a bunch of donuts in the room, and I'd say, all right, grab a donut, and they'd grab a donut. And then I'd grab the whole box, and I'd take the box of donuts over to a, a table where a bunch of other kids were sitting, and I'd sit down with them, and I'd say, hey, this is Johnny, he's new. I need you guys to find out five interesting things about Johnny, and then I'd walk away. right now half the time I forgot to go back full disclosure but they got the point like okay Jeff's coming back we need to find out about Johnny like five interesting things Johnny what's your favorite color Johnny where do you go to school Johnny uh, if you had a million dollars what would you do Johnny if if you could have dinner with five people dead or alive who would you have dinner with they like they had all these questions that they would jump into why because they knew the importance of getting to know people can you name five people at Catalyst Church who aren't all in the same stage of life as you Get to know some people, gather relationally. When we do this, we enjoy so many of the benefits and blessings. God's blessings multiply in the context of relationships and they diminish in isolation. Disobedience to God is often accompanied by distance from God's people. So gather relationally for your own soul and for others. And thirdly and finally, posture yourself obediently. Are you postured obediently? Story of a little girl who in a service not unlike this one, the preacher was talking about missions and being called to the mission field. And at the end of the sermon, they sang and a little girl came forward and she kneeled at the altar and she left a little piece of paper that simply said, scribbled in in her her best handwriting, Y-E-S, yes. And the preacher after the service went up to the little girl and said, I have such an encouragement to my heart to see you uh, praying at the end of the service. Did God call you to the mission field? And the little girl looked at him and said, no. Preacher said, okay, uh, did, did God put a certain place on your heart? And no. Did God put a people group, maybe somewhere in the world that you think he wants you to read? No. And so the preacher said, well, help me understand what, what, what's with the, the yes. And she said, I wanted God to know that whenever and wherever he did call me, my yes was already on the altar. Is your yes on the altar? Have you said to God, blank check, Blank check, here you go. Blank check. Now, for those of you that don't know what a check is, all right, check is this thing where you used to like, you'd be able to transfer money with this piece of paper and you'd write your name. And a blank check is when you would sign it but not fill in the amount and you'd give it to somebody and you'd be like, oh, I don't know, how much do I trust you, right? Because they were supposed to fill it in later. Now, um, J.D. Greer explains it this way. This, this might help. God doesn't want a Venmo relationship with you. It might be more clear than a blank check. He wants your bank username and password so that he can take out what he wants when he wants. Are you postured obediently? If you looked at the last six months or the last year of your life, have you been obedient to the Lord Jesus? Daryl Bach explains, those sent out, Barnabas and Saul, are qualified to plant new works on the basis of their previous contribution to the church. If your likelihood to be called to future ministry was based on your past ministry, how would you fare? One theologian uh, said, said it this way. He said, sometimes we'll ask, what is God's will for my life? Where is he calling me? He said, here's how you know. Turn around 180 degrees and see where God has been at work in your past. And once you get a grip on that, where God has been at work in your past, then turn around 180 degrees from there and get moving. Get to work. 
Look backwards in order to understand how God might be moving you forward. That's how it was with Barnabas and Saul. They had been faithful and God was going to continue to use their faithfulness. One of the greatest lies that Satan will tempt you to believe is I would, obe- I would be obedient if. I would be obedient if. Conditional imaginary obedience is a smokescreen for present disobedience. I would be obedient if I was on the mission field. I would be obedient if I had a better speaking ability. I would be obedient if I knew more of the Bible. I would be obedient if. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Be obedient right here, right now with what you've got. If you're not postured in ready obedience to God, then you haven't really heard from God. When God speaks, his people obey. His commands are not burdensome. His voice is not the voice of a slave driver. His guidance is not the cruel prodding towards loss. His lips do not drink or drip with poison, but with honey. When God speaks, his people love to obey because his word leads us into the fullness of joy. Yes, even his calls to repentance are calls unto life. His command sounds the loosening of chains, not their tightening. He sets you free. God intends for you to obey. Every time he speaks, his sheep hear his voice and they respond. So is that you? Are you one of his sheep? Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you belong to him? Have you been united to him by faith? If so, I want you to grab the communion elements in the pews in front of you.